desire is, after all, what? It's a feeling. What do all feelings have in common? They're temporary. Feelings are not reliable guides to behavior. You have to want to change, but wanting is not enough because sometimes you're going to really want to and sometimes you're not. So if you rely on your desire, you're not going to change. What is required is motivation. And motivation is a combination of things. Motivation is a combination of a decision. I will change, not I want to, I will. And a commitment. And the commitment is fundamentally, I will do whatever it takes to change, whether I feel like it or not. Today's guest has been one of the single most influential people in my own life and mental health. In this conversation, we talk about the most common dysfunctional and unhelpful patterns of thinking and behavior, what it takes to create lasting changes, what stops people from changing, and the skills that are necessary for psychological health and resilience. Dr. Raymond Bepko has been a practicing psychotherapist in New York State since 1978. He is presently in private practice in the central New York area. Dr. Bepko specifically uses mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy to help his patients recover from and transcend anxiety, depression, trauma, mood disorders, addiction, and to develop and practice the specific attitudes, skills, and behaviors that are central to physical and psychological wellness. Dr. Bepko has also been my personal therapist for the last eight years and who I lovingly refer to as the Robin Williams to my goodwill hunting. I'm feeling a little nervous because the tables are turned slightly today and <laughs> I, I almost don't even know what to do with myself having a whole hour or 45 minutes to pick your brain as opposed to you helping me try to fix mine. And as I was thinking about this episode and what I wanted to talk to you about, it really occurred to me that although you know almost everything about my life and the issues that I struggle with, I don't really know anything about yours. And I think that that's obviously one of the really important parts of a therapeutic relationship, and I'm sure there's a good reason for it. And I think a great place to begin would be if you could just share with listeners what your background is in the world of psychotherapy and how you got into this practice. Well, first, let me thank you for asking me to be on this. And, and in terms of tables turned, it's interesting. I was mentioning to a friend yesterday that I was doing this. And uh, she asked me how I was feeling about it. And I said I was a little nervous, which was unusual for me. I found it a little off-putting that I was, I was nervous. And she asked why. And I said, no, you know, maybe because it's a podcast and I've never done a podcast. It's a new technology to me. And she said, well, you know, you're not in charge. And I laughed because that was exactly the truth. That, that was it. So there's a table's turn quality to it. It's interesting. It's really interesting. I got into the business, so to speak, of psychotherapy in a kind of a roundabout way. I grew up in Connecticut. I grew up in a very loving, large, and dysfunctional family. My mother was uh, suffered from alcoholism and depression. So I learned a lot of unhealthy habits as a child and developed a number of habits that were useful and some that were not so useful. 
I was not intending, I never intended to be a therapist. That wasn't what I was going to do. I was going to become a lawyer or a historian. It was one of those two things. And then I added journalism to that as a possibility. It wasn't until graduate school, until I had graduated from uh, University of Connecticut with a bachelor's degree in special education. And then I went to University of Missouri for a while, intending to get a PhD. I did an internship, a research internship at Yeshiva University of New York. And it was there that I developed this interest in, well, what is this all about? What What's going on here? Why are people behaving the way they are? And why do they not change when they're unhappy and that was really eye-opening for me. It was life-changing for me. It was a great experience. And so I switched. I left the University of Missouri, went to Yeshiva University, and that's where I got my PhD in psychology. In the course of doing that, I went through some personal turmoil and started therapy, which is a good idea for somebody who's a wannabe therapist. You really ought to have the experience of it. I had the, the fortune, the good fortune of having experience with two wonderful therapists. One was a, uh, a social worker at uh, Rutgers University in their clinic. Mental health clinics were just really starting then. They were a new development, community mental health clinics. And a little bit later on, when I was going through another episode of personal turmoil, I saw this wonderful therapist who was a psychoanalyst, which was weird for me because I was a behaviorist. And the initial therapy, the first therapist I saw it was a uh, gestalt therapist. So I was exposed both personally and in, in my training to a wide variety of therapeutic orientations. And what I found is that both of those schools worked for me. So that was a valuable lesson for me as an aspiring therapist. So long way of saying it, it was a... Uh, Curvy road that got me to where I am today. And I don't regret it at all. That experience that I had was the experience that I needed to have to get to that point where I could actually become a therapist and not really screw anybody up. I think you've done a pretty good job doing the opposite so far in terms of helping me unscrew myself up at least just a little bit. And what I want to ask is that the form of therapy that you practice is so different from anything else I've ever experienced. And when I talk to friends or I talk to clients about the process of finding a therapist off and say, it's kind of like dating. You kind of have to go on quite a few dates before you find someone that you really that you really connect with and who speaks a language that gets through to you. And so I'm curious what kind of therapy it is that you practice now. Is it an amalgamation of all of those different styles that you were originally exposed to, or is it your own thing that you've formulated along the way? It's evolved over the 40 years or so. I was very much a kind of a strict cognitive behavioral therapist when I began with the emphasis on the integration of cognition and behavior, because if you change one and not the other, there's really no change that's lasting. And that served me very well for a very long time. But as time went on, I learned a lot. One of the ways that therapy has changed is that there's been a tremendous development in 
schools, therapies, theories, techniques over the last 40 years. Mindfulness-based cognitive behavior therapy is the way that I would describe what I do, but I also use elements of other traditions and other uh, things like emotionally focused therapy and trauma-focused therapy. And I've done neurofeedback, which I find really valuable in the past. But I think it's important that a therapist know what they're doing and have a theoretical background, a theoretical understanding of how people change and why people change. I distrust straight eclectical therapy. Well, I'll use whatever works. Because at some point, the quiver becomes empty. This isn't working. That isn't working. You try this. That's not working. And unless you have some theoretical framework to understand why and what might work, there's no more arrows in the quiver to pull out. And it's that theoretical background, which for me is still cognitive behavioral, but really infused with uh, mindfulness-based therapy. That's the, the quiver that I go back to if something isn't working. You know, well, what's going on here? Why isn't this working? And what might work in this particular situation with this particular person? Where is their resistance? Why is there resistance? What's giving rise to it? Or is this just not something that's likely to work for them? I'd have to say that I'm still basically a cognitive behavioral therapist, but with a big emphasis on the mindfulness aspect of it and all of those mindful skills and everything that comes with that. It's not just mindfulness. It's that philosophy, that orientation, that set of skills. Something that you mentioned is that there's this integration that needs to take place between cognition and behavior and facilitating change in both of those realms in order for a lasting effect to occur. And I'm curious if you can give some examples of some of the common dysfunctional or unhelpful patterns of cognition and behavior that you treat on a regular basis or that you see in our general population. I think one of the initial things that you have to focus on with, with someone is to help them to distinguish between thinking and feeling. We use those words interchangeably. I think, I feel. Okay? I feel that you are being whatever. You are being disrespectful. That's not a feeling. That's a thought. I may feel angry in response to that. But what I'm being angry in response to is my own thinking. So you really need to learn to distinguish between thinking and feeling. That's one thing. The second thing that I've noticed is that a lot of people have the belief that their feelings are sacrosanct, that, well, that's just the way I feel. No, it's not just the way you feel. It may be the way you think, and you may have a belief that because I feel this, it must be so. That's not true. That's just simply not true. Feelings are not facts. They're feelings. They're what you feel. They're valid. It's important not to say to somebody, no, you don't really feel that way, because they do. If they say, I feel angry, or I feel sad, or I feel anxious, they're not lying to you. That's what they feel. What informs that feeling 
what gives rise to that feeling, though, is perception, belief, experience, conditioning. Somebody will say to me, well, I just feel I can't change. You know, I feel like I've, I've tried over and over and over, and, and I, I just I, I feel like I can't change. And the first thing to do with that is challenge it. Challenge the belief. If you're going to change, you have to do two things. Challenge the beliefs and change the behaviors that are associated with the beliefs. I will then ask them, give me some examples of how you have changed. What's different? Are you telling me you've never changed your mind on anything? You've never come to see something is different than what you initially did? Well, no, I, you know, da, 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 da. And you've never learned anything new? You've never done something differently because you saw somebody do a different, well, no, yeah, I, I have. Okay. So this belief that you can't change is false. It's false. And that's summarizing a, a lot of work that goes on with somebody, but that's a fundamentally what it is. And they may begin to see themselves differently. Well, maybe I can change. If they then don't act on that, they don't change, which then reinforces the belief. The belief and the behavior go hand in hand. And this is why I think therapy fails a lot of times. People will focus on the behavior, and they will change the behavior temporarily because they are, it's suggested to them, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you practice meditation? Why don't you do yoga? Um, you know, exercising will feel good for you. And uh, here's some assertiveness skills that you can use. So you can train people to, to do things and they can learn to do them and do them well. If their belief doesn't change, their belief that they can't ultimately change, that they must fail, that they're not good enough, that they don't deserve it. If that doesn't change along with the behavior, we will go back to our old behavior. One of the things that I think people need to understand about feelings is that they reinforce the status quo. That's one of the functions of feeling is to reinforce the status quo. So if I wear a watch, which is increasingly uh, unusual these days, but if I wear a watch on my left wrist, that's where I always wear it. And if I just for heck of it wear it on my right wrist, I'm going to feel uncomfortable. That discomfort, the focus of the discomfort is the function of the discomfort is to get me to put the watch back on the left wrist where it belongs. So habits uh, of thought and habits of feeling are intimately connected. We need to be aware. That's where the mindfulness part comes in. We need to be aware of what are we thinking? Where is that coming from? What are the beliefs on which it is based? What are the facts? What's the evidence? And we need to be aware that our feelings are just feelings. They're temporary emotions that we are experiencing. And we need to be able to distinguish between thought and feeling. Feelings are not reliable guides to behavior. One of the things that is a sure indication of resistance is when somebody says, well, that's just the way I feel. 
And the assumption behind that is that's a feeling, that's valid, you shouldn't challenge that, I can't challenge that, that's just the way it is. And that assumption is very, very dangerous. It is an obstacle to lasting change, to true change. When you encounter someone in your practice who has a lot of resistance in that way, what is the likelihood that they are able to ultimately break through that and create the changes that they're seeking? Pretty good, actually. Um, If given a willingness to change, given motivation to change, motivation is something else that people confuse. They, They don't really understand. Most people confuse, at least initially, they confuse motivation with desire. And when people begin therapy, they really want to change. They have a strong desire to change. But desire is, after all, what? It's a feeling. What do all feelings have in common? They're temporary. They're impermanent. They pass. And we know that from our lives. We know that from our ordinary lives. It's not just just therapy. Every January, people have a strong desire to get healthy and fit, and they join the gym, and they really want to do it, and they're really enthusiastic about it, and come February, March, not so much. The gyms are empty again, right? Or not empty, but there's a a lot fewer people there. Why is that? Because they were relying on desire to bring them to change. That's not what brings them to change. You have to want to change, but wanting is not enough because sometimes you're going to really want to and sometimes you're not. Meditation is an example of that. Exercise is an example of that. Uh, Healthy eating is an example of that. Sometimes you really, 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 really want to do it. And sometimes, nah, you don't. So if you rely on your desire, you're not going to change. What is required is motivation. And motivation is a combination of things. Motivation is a combination of a decision. I will change. Not I want to. I will. And a commitment. And the commitment is fundamentally, I will do whatever it takes to change, whether I feel like it or not at any given moment. That's the hardest. It's, it's funny, but that's one of the hardest things to get people to, to really see. Once they do... And once they buy into it, the process of change becomes a lot easier. That's so interesting. As I was preparing myself for this episode, I did a little bit of research because, you know, I understand a lot about neuroplasticity. That has been my biggest area of research and focus previously, but I didn't actually know how the process of psychotherapy changes the human brain. And The biggest piece of research I kept kind of coming up against as I was preparing myself for this conversation was that it increases the prefrontal cortex's ability to inhibit the limbic system, which is the part of your brain that's responsible for feeling. So in other words, the process of psychotherapy gives us the ability to create space and distance between our emotional states and not immediately buy into whatever our emotions are compelling us to do from moment to moment, because that is fleeting. It, it does change from second to second. So I thought that that was fascinating and so relevant to what you just shared. And and also, 
I think one of the biggest differences that I've seen in my own personal life is that when something infuriating happens, I still get angry. I still feel rage. I still feel upset. And I can respond intentionally and with compassion and with kindness. And I think that's because I'm not swayed by my emotions as intensely as I used to be when we first started our work together, which I think I mentioned this in the introduction, but which has been an an eight-year-long therapeutic relationship. And most people that I know that seek out treatment and seek out psychotherapy will quit after a little while or after they get to a point where they feel like, no, I'm good, which is definitely something that I've tried to do with you a few times. There have been a few moments when I I thought I've graduated from therapy only to come back uh, a few short months later. So I'm curious if you can speak to why people quit or why they give up on therapy after a while. I believe that there are a number of reasons why people give up, why they quit. I think the number one reason is that it's working. The therapy is working to some degree. There's some change. There's some movement out of the comfort zone. And remember, in order to change, we have to leave our comfort zone. Our comfort zone consists of what we habitually do. We're comfortable doing it. We don't have to think about it. It's not a big deal. We just do it. So if you are actually changing in therapy, that's an uncomfortable process early in in the process. In the process of change, one of the steps to actually change is to embrace the discomfort, not avoid it, not look at it as a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a guide. It's telling you you're doing the right thing. If you're feeling uncomfortable doing this, this is exactly what you need to be doing. So that's another reason why you can't make feelings the guide to your behavior. If you allow your feelings to dictate your behavior, you become a slave to your emotions. That's not a good place to be. Um, So I think when they get uncomfortable and when they believe that they shouldn't be uncomfortable, I came here to feel good. I want to feel better. I want to, to just feel okay. That's nice, but it's not as simple as that. You have to go through that process of change. Uh, and eventually you do feel better. But when people first experience true change, it's very uncomfortable. That will often drive them out of therapy. And I think that is, uh, that is the number one reason. Another reason is that the people around them don't like it, the people they're with. So somebody comes in who tends to be passive or dependent or passive aggressive, and they learn some skills for being assertive and independent, that's going to have an impact on their relationships, not just romantic relationships, but relationships with friends at work, et cetera. And the feedback they get from that is not necessarily going to be positive. We don't necessarily like it when other people change. We have a choice when somebody changes. We can either accommodate to that change, change our thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and response to it, or we can assimilate that change into how we think. Well, that's just because they're going to that stupid therapist, or that's just your therapist talking. What, what is this nonsense? Um, and unless people are 
able and willing to say, I'm changing. I hope you're able to deal with that. They uh, often will quit. They'll often go back to the status quo. Status quo has a really strong pull for us because it's easier. It's more comfortable. And we like it. That's true in relationships, but it's also true in our lives. It's why diets fail. One of the reasons why diets fail. Um, one of the many reasons why diets fail. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Not just the difficulty of doing it, losing the weight, eating healthy, learning how to eat healthy, all the things you have to do to do that, maybe adding in some, some exercise to that, but getting used to yourself in a new body. When we're used to seeing ourselves one way and we begin to look another way and other people react to us in a different way, either positive or negative. Oh, you're looking gaunt, you know, or, boy, you look really great. If we're not used to hearing that, our initial impulse, which is, comes deep from the brain, it's not, it's not a sign of character defect. It's just a, a brain process is to go back to what we always did. And so then people regain the weight and then they're back in the cycle. Oh, that's true with any habit. One of the things that you supported me with a lot in the beginning when I first started seeing you was making changes in my relationships, learning how to set boundaries, mm -hmm. learning how to assert myself, and then having to accept the reality that not everyone was going to like that. Right. Because I wanted so badly for everyone to be okay with the changes that I was making, especially when they didn't benefit the other people that were involved. Right. And right. and that was a really, really tough pill for me to swallow and having to make that choice between, well, do I want to continue on in the direction that I'm wanting to grow in or do I want to revert back to my old patterns in an effort to preserve the dynamic that my relationships were previously engaging in. It's one of the things that we have to learn is to tolerate our discomfort, but also to tolerate the discomfort of other people and to recognize that our discomfort is our responsibility. Their discomfort is not our responsibility. It's theirs. It's theirs. And we get into these codependent patterns where we want to make everybody like us. We want to make everybody approve of us. We want to make everybody love us. It's just not possible. It's not possible. So that can become a barrier to change and a reason why people go backwards. One of my favorite Dr. Bepko quotes is, if it doesn't have your name on it, don't pick it up. <laughs> you trained me well. Yeah. You'd be amazed. I mean, now you're no longer amazed because you're a pro at it. But how many things we take on that don't have our names on? And that causes us great grief, great distress, great hassle. And they're time wasters. They're energy wasters because it's not ours. It's not ours. And we don't have the authority to change anybody else either. That's part of, the, uh, part of what has to happen too, is to recognize that nobody is asking us to change them. And we don't have the power to. They have the power to. 
And even in a therapeutic relationship, I have no power to change anyone. None. I can't make people do anything. What I can do is show them how and work with them to, to learn to motivate themselves and to develop the commitment and practice the skills of thinking, feeling, and action and relationship that will benefit them, that will make their lives better, that will result in their feeling better. It's really understanding that feeling follows action. And that action has to do with both how we think, how we act, and how we relate to other people and how we relate to the world in general. Those are all parts of that that process. And what happens in the best situations is that the person's identity actually changes. And what I mean by that is they begin to see themselves differently. They stop over-identifying with their problems. They don't over-identify with a diagnosis or a disease. One of the things that drives me crazy is I hear people will say, well, my disease made me do it. My depression made me do it. My bipolar made me do it. My addiction made me do it. No, it didn't. The addiction is there. The depression is there. The anxiety is there. But it isn't you. It's something you're experiencing. You are not depression. You are you. And there's something you have to deal with here, but it isn't you. And the reason that's important is what, what do we defend the most? Our identities, our sense of self. So if my sense of self is as of an unworthy, not deserving, incompetent. You can swear on here. All these episodes are explicit. There we go. Okay. If I think of myself as a fucking asshole and that's who I am, that's really who I am, and I don't deserve anything. No matter what I present to the world, I might present the exact opposite of that. I might, you know, come across as uh, really self-confident and arrogant, even, and you know, really capable. But if I think of myself badly, I am eventually going to find a way to get confirmation of that. So if I think I can never be loved and somebody actually loves me, my response is likely to be, what the hell's the matter with them? Don't they see? Or it might be, well, when they really get to know me, they're not going to. Why does that happen? It happens because I see myself as unworthy. I see myself as not good enough. That's the perfectionism. Perfectionism plays a big role in that. You know, I have to be perfect in order to be okay. I have to be perfect in order to be acceptable to somebody else. Identity shifts is another major component in whether therapy is successful. More more than that, whether people are successful in their lives and happy in their lives, how they see themselves has a huge role to play in that. You mentioned identity perfectionism, codependency, and I'm curious if there are any other major themes that you think are really important to look at and address with your patients or with anybody that you're treating. Are there any other common issues that most people struggle with? 
I think there are. I, I think there are a number. One is uh, disconnection, isolation. We are not often connected in the real world as much as we were. We are online. You and I are online at this moment, and there's a connection, but it's different from being in person. I learned this the other day. Oh, in real life, IRL. kind of thing drives me batty. But we don't have the connections anymore. If you look at people out to dinner, family out to dinner, what are they doing? They're looking at this. They're on their phone. People substitute virtual reality for actual reality. And I think that increases our isolation. That increases our uh, disconnection from one another. One of the things that is predictive of happiness is being connected to other people in a real, substantial way. I think that's a modern illness, really, of our society and of our culture. Families are very different than what they used to be. When I was growing up, pretty much everybody lived in the same area, and everybody got together, and, you know, you might have hated your relatives, but they were still your relatives, and you did, you know, families did things together, and they supported one another. People are scattered now, so there's not that opportunity. Families have to be much more intentional. One of the things that people can do, in a sense, create a family, an intentional network of friends who are there not to, just to do stuff with, but who are, we feel a connection to. That lack of connection is really important. People are isolated. People feel alone. That feeds the unworthiness. That's a big thing. There is a lot of unresolved trauma also. We think of, we tended to think of trauma as, uh, at one point, as limited to combat, you know, people, PTSD. But there's a lot of minor trauma that cumulatively has the same effect and deeply affects the brain, deeply affects that limbic system, the HDPA axis, and, and affects how people respond to the things that go on in their lives. And that has to be addressed. There at least has to be a check of traumatic history. And it's the subtle things. Verbal abuse is in some ways and in some circumstances more traumatizing than physical abuse because it doesn't heal as quickly. Unresolved trauma will very much interfere with somebody's recovery. I think the general sense of overwhelm that people experience now in our society the do, 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 people see themselves as human doings, not human beings. And we've got to always be doing something. We don't learn to be comfortable in our own skin. We don't practice it. We don't just chill. And I think those are our major issues. There are specific kinds of thinking that lead to problems, all or nothing thinking, black and white thinking, awfulizing turning the proverbial molehill into a, into a mountain. Cognitive distortions, which we've talked about in some previous episodes as well. Yeah. Cognitive distortions are really critical, and addressing those is critical in, in therapy. It really has to be addressed because how you think determines to a large extent, not, not entirely, but to a large extent how you feel. If I think nobody is capable of loving me or I think I'm not worthy of being loved, 
and somebody says something positive to me, I'm going to dismiss it. And those habits are very difficult to change. In fact, I think th there's an argument to be made that we don't break habits. We don't change a habit. We don't eliminate habits. We can wear them down. We can reduce their likelihood of activation, but we're not going to eliminate them. They're lurking there. They're waiting for us. What we can do is build healthier habits that are more likely to occur when we practice them over time. In effect, create new neural pathways. That's what we're doing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Circling back to what we talked about in the very beginning about the therapeutic relationship being different, why do you think it's so conducive to healing that somebody comes and sees a psychotherapist as opposed to any other relationship, as opposed to a friendship or a relationship with their parents? What about this dynamic makes it so powerful in terms of healing and psychological resilience? I think what makes it powerful is the fact that it's one way. It's one way. All other relationships are not. All other relationships are two-way to some extent. Friendships, romantic relationships, work colleagues, all relationships are interreact. The relationship with a therapist is one way. It doesn't matter how the therapist feels. It doesn't matter if the therapist is having a bad day. It doesn't matter if they're cranky or irritable. What matters is that they are present to you, that they are there for you, that their sole focus is on helping you to change in the ways that you want to and you need to. And that that's liberating. It's one of the few circumstances, one of the few situations in which it really is all about you. And I think that's the dynamic that, that makes that possible. Now, it's not the only thing. Obviously, the skills of the therapist are the major thing. But that's the ground under which everything else develops. That may be the only place where it's all about you or where it should be all about you. It shouldn't be all about you and other relationships. But that is the one place where it can be. The recovering people pleaser in me still forgets that from time to time. And I can remember like a few distinct moments in our sessions together where I've shared with you, I'm afraid to talk to you about this boyfriend because I'm worried that you don't like him. And your response is always, why would I not like him? I don't even know him. And I think that it's been so helpful for me in terms of putting to practice communication skills that I've learned, but also detaching from the people-pleaser tendency in me and the codependent tendency in me. There are definitely still moments when I wonder what you write in your notes about me after we get off of our calls. But I think that the fact that it is so one-directional is so, so helpful. So if somebody wanted to begin psychotherapy for the very first time ever, what do you think is the first step that they should take in terms of finding someone that they really connect to and that's a good fit for them? I think one of the things that they should do is to remember something that, that you said earlier on. It's really about finding a fit for you. It's about asking yourself, what's my motive? 
What is my motive for going into to therapy? What is it that I want to change? How do I want to be different? It's, that's one of, one of the things that you ask, uh, that I tend to ask people in the first session is, how do you want to be different six months from now? If somebody says six months, a year from now, has therapy been helpful? And you're able to genuinely say yes. How would you know? What would be different about you? And I think that helps people to begin to understand what they want to change, what they maybe need to change, and that will help in searching for a therapist. You got to talk to people. There are a lot of referral services now. Psychology Today has one where you go by county or by area. They'll give you a lot of information, but eventually you have to pick up the phone and call. And to some degree, I would say to people, trust your instinct. There are some therapist-patient matches that just don't work. They just don't work. And they don't work because the therapist is bad or the patient is bad. They just don't work. We have visceral responses to people. We do. There are some people we just don't like. And some people we instantly like. If that's strong enough, go with it. Talk to somebody, and you could get a sense, no, no, that's not, not going to work. Or, yeah, I really want to talk to this person. I'm willing to pursue it. I'm willing to pursue it. Trust that. Trust that instinct. The difficulty, of course, is going to be in finding a therapist because therapists are now overwhelmed. I'm not taking any new people, and I get asked all the time, can you refer me to somebody? And I will if I can. But nobody I know is really taking new people. There aren't enough therapists. The mental health needs of our society have just grown for a lot of reasons, but for some of the reasons that, I, that we, we've talked about. I think this virtual isolation and virtual reality versus reality reality is, is one of them. There's a lot of others, obviously. So the need is far greater. The pandemic just jump-started that. The political insanity in which we live has added to that. People are afraid. Uh, all of those things have created a, a much higher demand. And there are fewer therapists. So uh, it's a supply and demand issue. If you have a choice, pick one that's got some experience. Everybody has to start out. And when I started out, I thought I was good. You know, I mean, I had, had doubts, and, you know, all of that, but I thought, and I knew I had a lot to learn, but I thought I was good. I look back now and I think, oh my God. So experience does matter. Experience matters. Look for somebody who has experience in the area that you're most concerned with. So if you have a trauma history, you want a trauma, uh, somebody who knows something about trauma, who's trauma-informed therapy, whether that's a specific skill like EMDR or EFT, or has some background, some experience. That's true with addiction. It's true with depression. It's true with mood disorders generally. It's true with relationships, family therapy. Look for somebody who's got some experience there. You don't want somebody to learn on you. You know, there's, a, there's irony there in the sense that we all have to learn somewhere. 
Um, but if you have a choice, you don't want somebody to learn on you. I think the, the main difficulty, though, is just simply going to be finding somebody who's got an opening and can see you. And that doesn't seem to be likely to change anytime soon, which is unfortunate because therapy can be very helpful. It can be life-changing. For me, it was life-changing. You want to look for somebody who will challenge you. You don't want somebody to co-sign your bullshit. Some people come into therapy and that's exactly what they want. They want somebody to say, yeah, you know, if I had your life, I'd be as miserable as you. Or you're right. It's all those other people that are causing all of your problems. If you find a therapist who co-signs your bullshit, run. Get out of there. You want somebody to challenge you. It's a curious balance. You want to feel comfortable with a therapist. You want to like them at some level. You want to feel like they understand you at some level and that they're there for you in the way that we talked about earlier. But you also want a therapist who you know will tell you when you're full of shit because that's the only way you're going to change. And people get into therapy for a lot of reasons, their own mental health being one of them. Um, and some therapists are unhealthy. It's just the nature of it. And run, run. There's no problem with changing therapists. You're not locked in. You're really not locked in. The initial sessions may be difficult for someone who's just starting therapy because the therapist may be challenging them and they may be beginning to feel uncomfortable. My advice to that person is stick with it. Stick with it. Give it enough time and enough sessions to know whether this is likely to be helpful for you. If the hair on the back of your neck stands up, go somewhere else. If after a while you seem to be stuck in a loop with the therapist, not just in your own behavior, find somebody else. It's really okay. You can break up with your therapist is basically what you're saying. Absolutely. And people do all the time, and that's okay. And therapists, if the therapist is any good, there will come times in the course of their career when they say to someone, I don't think this is working. And I think you might be better served by a therapist who works differently than I do. I don't really think that I can help you. You know, given my understanding of things and how things are and how to change, and given your understanding and, and your preferences. And it, it's really important that when you do that, you're not blaming the patient. You're just saying, this isn't working, and I think you might be better served somewhere else. I had to do that a few times over the course of my career. And one of the things about the therapeutic relationship, it has to be compassionate and kind. But kindness and compassion don't preclude accountability, holding someone accountable. If someone is constantly late or misses sessions or doesn't do the homework that you prescribe, if you do, you got to hold them accountable. What is it that you're really trying to do here? And if you see therapy, as I do, as a change process, process of change, to help people to change, and they really are not interested in changing, that's really okay. 
They don't have to change. They can choose to stay the same. What they can't do is use me as a way of saying, well, I'm going to therapy. So, you know, I'm doing what I need to do. Because if you're just going to therapy, you're really not. You're not getting uncomfortable. Right. Right. I know you mentioned that therapists are really hard to find these days, especially ones that have availability and space to take on new patients. I've spoken about you very publicly before, I think on the podcast already, but definitely on social media. And every time I do, I refer to you as the Robin Williams to my Goodwill hunting. And <laughs> and it's really surprising for everyone because I think when a lot of people meet me, they expect my therapist first and foremost to be a, a woman and to be like very soft and gentle. And I always have to say to them, nah, Dr. Bepko is tough love. <laughs> He's really tough love. And then I always get a ton of questions about whether or not you're taking on new patients. So I know that those questions are going to be coming in after this episode airs. So is that something that you're taking on right now? And if so, who would be a good fit to be working with you right now? Well, I'm not now. And partly that's because of the stage of my career and because of my age and, and what I'm willing to do to work. Part of the thing that a therapist has to do is take care of themselves. And so I work part-time and I only work in the mornings. The difference between now and when I started is if somebody called for an appointment, I'd figure out a way to fit them in. Now that was because I was growing my practice, uh, but it was also my own codependency, my own caretaking issues. Now I don't do that. I don't do that anymore. It took me a long time to learn that, but I don't do that anymore. So right now, I'm not accepting new people, and I'm not sure when I'll be able to. Sometime in the fall, probably, but then it'll be very it'll be very limited, and it's hard to turn people down. I I get calls pretty much every day, and I get calls often along the lines of of, I know you're not taking new people, but and it breaks your heart sometimes, and I know that I can't do it. I know that it doesn't work for me. I have fun working with people who are motivated, who are who have made a decision they're going to change and that they're going to do whatever it takes. That doesn't mean they're not going to have resistance. They have to have resistance. If, if there's no resistance in the course of the therapy, I know I'm doing something wrong because change is inherently difficult and we resist doing it. We always look for an easier, softer way. That's being human and that's okay. But I like people who are committed to the process. I like people who are willing to practice. A lot of this is practice. I like dealing with anxiety. I like dealing with depression. I like uh, dealing with trauma. I like dealing with self-esteem issues, self-worth issues. And I like people who are willing to try different things, who are willing to step out of their comfort zone, and who are willing, and, and this is what I say to people, and I've always said to people, to set aside their disbelief in the possibility that they can change and that their lives can be better, that their lives can be joyful and purposeful. Set aside your disbelief. You may disbelieve that now. 
And I'm not asking you to believe that everything's going to come up, you know, lollipops and puppies and roses, because it's not. But set aside at least the disbelief, and let's see if there's a way. I have to also say that one of the, the things that I think causes the difficulty that people are having in finding therapists is the economics of therapy. You know, in the helping professions, it's really interesting. This is particularly true of women in the helping professions, but they're often afraid to talk about money. Well, they really need the help. That's nice. When you call your plumber, you really need the help, but your plumber isn't going to do it for nothing, and he's not going to give you a discount. The services that a good therapist provides are valuable. They are not compensated well. And that's just the reality. It's really interesting to me that if you look at insurance payments for standard psychotherapy, they are essentially what they were in the 1980s. Yeah, there is no other profession that is not better compensated than it was in 1980. Some of the insurance companies are actually paying less than they were paying in the 1980s. In actual dollars, I'm not talking about inflation adjusted. I'm talking about actual dollars. And some insurances are okay. Interestingly enough, Medicare is one of the better ones. It doesn't pay great, but it, once you're established with them, it's not really a big deal. But a lot of insurances just pay crap. There's no other profession where that happens. And people balk at paying for therapy. They pay their lawyer three, four, five hundred dollars an hour. You can't get a plumber coming to your house for less than two hundred dollars. I mean, there are a lot of things where people are just the expectation is strange. And and we as a profession have not, I have to say, have not done a very good job in promoting our value to people. So I think that's one of the reasons why. But I do think that the economics of it is one of the reasons why there aren't enough therapists. And particularly why there aren't enough therapists in private practice, because it just doesn't do it. Your return on investment is one of the lower, lowest returns on investment you can find in the, in the professions. That said, it's a wonderful profession. It's a wonderful profession. I, do, I would not have done anything else, except maybe be a journalist. I would have really liked that. As you were speaking, I was thinking about what a great lawyer you would have been as well. I know that that was an option early on. I could see you doing really well. <laughs> the idea of being a lawyer was really appealing to me. And part of it was the competitiveness of it. And part of it was the wordsmithing. But then I looked at all the bullshit that's involved. Do I really want to do that? No, no. But that, that was my expectation early on. I really feel... Honored, honored, and blessed in some ways to be able to be present to people and to be able to witness the courage and the strength that people demonstrate in the process of therapy and in, in the process of changing. You don't get to see that in most places, most jobs, most careers. And I get to see that every day. I get to see it every day. And when it works, it's really high, highly rewarding. It, it, it does give you a nice blast to the old dopamine system in the nucleus accumbens, right? 
when you see somebody actually get it, oh, wow, that's wonderful. That's really wonderful. So it's like everything else in life, positives, negatives, you have to, to make a choice. You have to make a choice. So if someone wanted to learn more about you or from you, if that's even an option, or if there is any resource you would refer them to, where should they go? Anything that you share is going to be put into the show notes. They'll have easy access to it. Well, then come to my website, which is just simply raybapcoPhD.com, and they can contact me through that. I think there's a link on there. I don't go to it often, so I don't know. In terms of resources, that's that's really a very good question. I would, would recommend that they read a couple of different people. One is a very old book, Viktor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist in the concentration camps during the war. And he was a, he developed logotherapy. He wrote a, a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And I still go back to that occasionally to, to reread it. It's a wonderful book. It has a great, great story. I would read John Kabat-Zinn, Full Catastrophe Living. I love the title. He is one of the founding fathers of, of meditation and mindfulness generally in our society. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen monk who died last year, has some wonderful writings. If you're really into it and into the, uh, the nerdy aspects of it, I would read a psychologist named Donald Meichenbaum, who is one of the real pioneers of cognitive behavioral therapy. And he's a great presenter. I'm sure you can find him on YouTube. And I mean, he's just, he's a lot of fun to, to watch. I would definitely recommend a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kirk. It, he is, is one of the pioneers in trauma work. I do think that the other thing that people could do is talk to their friends or family about who they've seen. If you notice that somebody's different, ask them. You know, you seem different. How'd that happen? And a lot of times they're going to tell you there'll be some common responses to it. Well, they, they got some help, or they were fortunate enough to be able to do it on their own. They did their own research, and they did what they needed to do. But they're going to tell you that they are more present in their own lives they're more aware of their own feelings, their own thoughts, their own needs. They recognize them more realistically for what they are. They wear life like a loose garment. They're happy. How'd you get that way? How'd you get that way? You may not be able to do everything that they say, and it may not resonate for you, but it's good research. It's good research. How'd you do that? What'd you do? I wonder if I could. And, you know, if they've seen a therapist, they may be able to recommend someone. And I think that that's going to be really useful information for anybody who's listening, who's trying to figure out what to do next to get their own therapy journey started. So I'm curious, are there any other words of wisdom or practices you could recommend to anybody who's listening before we close out our time together today? Be present. Be present. We get so distracted in our lives now. Uh, there was always that 
stress and stuff and raising kids. There's always that. But there seems to me to be far more now. And I think practicing being present, pausing, just stopping for a moment, coming back to yourself, coming back to your breathing, as you well know, the breath is, when do we breathe? Now. 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 Come back to the breath. Get grounded. Breathe. Simple technique. Breathe. Feel your body. Find your feet. Follow your breath. Feel your body. Notice what chair is like that you're sitting in. Come back to yourself. Come back to yourself. Be present to you. Notice, observe what you're experiencing, what you're feeling. That simple skill opens up a whole world if you practice it. It's skillful. It's, it's, it's becoming skillful at it. That really opens things up. When you do something, just do that. Multitasking is my least favorite word at the moment because I think multitasking keeps us from being present. We're doing this, that, scatters us. When we're scattered, we're not present. There's an old Zen saying, if you are chopping wood, just chop wood. If you're carrying water, just carry water. We don't do that in our society. When we drive, we think about all the meetings we're going to have at work and all this kind of stuff, and and we don't pay attention to the changes in the countryside as we're driving, to the colors, to the sensations, to the animals. We don't pay attention to it. We miss everything. We miss our lives. If we're not present, we miss our lives. Our lives go by us. And being present to ourselves makes it possible to be present to others. And that's where the connection comes in. And that's how our isolation is reduced and how our interconnectedness develops. So if people did just one thing, I would say do that. But if they had room to do another thing, I would tell them, believe. Believe in yourself. Have some faith. Have some faith. Have some faith that you can, you can, you absolutely can live a life of joy and purpose and meaning. Not all the time. Sometimes life sucks. You know, life on life's terms sometimes just sucks. But overall, you can live a life of joy and purpose and meaning. It's possible for you. You have to grab it. You have to take back the power that you've given away to other people, things, etc., etc., etc. But if you do that, you can be happy. You absolutely can. I'm getting like a little teared up just listening to you share it. Thank you so much for your time today and being willing to come on here and talk with me. I'm really, really grateful. And I know that the listeners will be as well. I'm looking forward to hearing the podcast with, I have to say, a little anxiety. I'd be really curious as to how this, how this comes up. But I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been fun. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears of more listeners like you by leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. 
When you share this episode on Instagram and tag me at Alex underscore Nashton for the month of June 2023, you'll be entered into a giveaway for the chance to win a 90-minute long coaching call with me. Each episode that you share and tag me in will lead to one entry, which means that you can share them all. This podcast baby is a labor of love for me. I'm not making any money on it. I just want to help get this life-changing and helpful information into as many brains as humanly possible. Last but not least, I want to thank Adam Russell for tirelessly supporting me physically and emotionally in the creation of this podcast. Adam is responsible for stringing together the epic intro and outro music, monitoring the sound quality, and is also the person I've called in the middle of the night, I can't even tell you how many times, when I've been freaking out about this podcast. Adam, you are a lifelong friend and a musical genius. I am so, so grateful to have you in my life, and I love you tremendously.